It's not just a personal sin, it's also sort of a political sin. And you create the very machinery that will later be used against you. And that's exactly what happened. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, Dr. John Pinheiro speaks with Dr. Joseph Stewart, associate professor of history and fellow in Catholic studies at the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota, about the complexity of the European Enlightenments, namely the most common misconceptions and the mistake made by Christian and secular scholars alike who see the Enlightenment only as a simplistic conflict between faith and reason. Stewart argues that Christians interacted with the Enlightenments by using one of three strategies, conflict, engagement, or retreat. Along the way, Dr. Pinheiro and Dr. Stewart uncover interesting tales of a Catholic enlightenment in Italy, consider the connection between an authentic human anthropology and genuine liberty, and draw lessons about the unintended consequences of integral Catholic states. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This is Dr. John Panero, Director of Research at Acton Institute, and it's my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Joseph Stewart. We're going to spend some time with Dr. Stewart talking about the Enlightenment, uh, but first let me tell you a little bit of something about him. Dr. Stewart is, I'd say, a newly minted professor of history, having been associate professor of history when we arranged this interview, now professor and chair of history at the University of Mary of North Dakota, where he's also a fellow in Catholic studies. Dr. Stewart earned his PhD from the University of Edinburgh in 2009 in modern intellectual history and also holds degrees from the University of St. Andrews and the Franciscan University of Steubenville. Besides the book we're going to discuss today, Dr. Stewart is also the author of Christopher Dawson, A Cultural Mind in the Age of the Great War, published by Catholic University of America Press in 2022. Uh, we love Dawson around here, Joseph, if I can call you Joseph. And so, uh, sure. so I, I look forward to reading that book as well and hope to have you back on Act in Line to discuss it at some point. That'd be wonderful. So the, the book I really wanted to talk to you about is Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason, which was published by Sophia Institute Press in 2020. Uh, when I was going through uh, college in the late 80s and into the early 90s, it is kind of undergraduate work, we would only hear about the Enlightenment, never the plural. And then you encounter the complexity later on as the Acton Institute likes to, uh, we like to talk a lot about the Enlightenments and stress uh, which ones are more Christian-friendly than the others and what that all means. But there still, I would say, is, a, is an overwhelming narrative about what the Enlightenment was. And I'm, I'm hoping we can get at that today. And, and just ask, I'd ask you my first question, which is, why do we need to rethink the Enlightenment? In other words, what's, what's wrong with the way we tend to think about it? 
Uh, you and yeah. I would be outliers in this already, right? So what what's wrong with the way we think about it? Another way to ask that would be to just ask you, know, what what is the established view of the Enlightenment and what, what needs to be corrected about it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the great question. So um, one of the one of the problems that I that I noticed in my research on this on this topic um, was an old, kind of an overgeneralization, uh, especially in kind of lay circles. You know, most historians nowadays recognize the Enlightenment was more complex than has been has been thought by many. But um, but in lay circles, people who love history but maybe you know don't, haven't had a, a lot of formal training in it, and they'll speak of sort of the Enlightenment right, or the Reformation, or sort of use titles like this to kind of in a sweeping terms of a of a major historical movement. And I think that's fine. I mean, I use I use it in my you know rethinking the Enlightenment. I use it in my title, but that's sort of a concession to popular usage, yeah. right? To draw people in, and say, okay, well, what we need to re- the reason we need to rethink it is because our overgeneralization actually obscures the truth of the past. And so we need to, instead of thinking of the Enlightenment as sort of this idea floating above history, right? We can sort of blame the philosophers for this. Hegel was the first to kind of create this this idea of the Enlightenment that sort of floats above history. And then people pick it up, including historians and journalists and politicians and Catholic pundits and conservative writers. They they, they pick up this idea of the Enlightenment in this kind of um, antithetical relationship a dialectical relationship. I will you will continue with Hegel's analogy here uh, with faith, right? So it's sort of enlightenment versus religion, and uh, we can blame Hegel for this, but we can also blame uh, Catholic historians and and sort of a a blinder uh, to the full story of the past. Well, we're not, you know, we don't blame them in the sense of we understand, right? Because when a, when a when a person goes through trauma, uh, a person's memory is affected, and the Catholics went through trauma for sure through the French revolution and through Napoleon and the early 19th century. It was traumatic for Catholics. And and part of the background to my argument is that that trauma at a personal and at an institutional level sort of fragmented memory of what the full enlightenment was. And so we sort of gripped onto this idea of, Oh, you know, who's the enemy? It's the enlightenment. And it caused the French revolution, which then attacked the church. And so then we get this dichotomous view in our modern understanding of the world as sort of religion versus secular. And so this immediately plays into a relevance in today's conversations about politics and culture and society today, because um, we, we project our polarity backward into the past. And so rethinking the past can help us rethink our own, a more nuanced, much more intelligent, sophisticated position in relation to our culture today. Good historians know that uh, history is about interpretation. And those of us who are not in the past, particularly the Enlightenment, and the farther back we go, the more this is true, we're interpreting the past using the data that we have, using the theories that we have, but applying those to real data, asking new questions of old evidence, old questions of new evidence. Uh, and I think that's a little bit of what you've, you've done here. I, I wonder how you would fit this, the historiography you described of the Enlightenment just there that we see in uh, Peter Gay's Enlightenment book, which you take to task a little bit, that's uh, published in 1966, where you get this sense that really Christians, especially Catholics, didn't have an Enlightenment, number one. And number two, it's strongly secular against Christianity, that that's what the mm-hmm. Enlightenment was. That was its essence. If we were to track backward a little bit and investigate the Renaissance and its view of, say, the classical world and and whatever came in between and then the Renaissance and our current views of the Renaissance, 
Isn't there also something that we see there too, something similar? That is the whole mm-hmm. the whole time period of the medieval synthesis, what Christopher Dawson would have called uh, just Christendom, that somehow this is where things went went wrong, and things must be things must be restored in some way. And it's often the sense that somehow reason is gone, but it's not reason they're restoring, is it? it it's a, it's a very rigid empiricism in, in most cases. Mm-hmm. I I guess if you could. You know, apply that whole theory of progress and the Whig theory of history, and we're all becoming we're all becoming grownups, right? We're we're leaving our childhood in history, and becoming grownups. Is isn't there something bigger here? In other words, than just about how we interpret the Enlightenment? I mean, there's this kind of presentist presentism, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you can see it kind of on on both sides of the interpretive spectrum, one of which is the Peter Gay side that you mentioned, which sort of says, you know, enlightenment versus Christianity, Christianity bad, enlightenment good, right? It's sort of the secular narrative that we're going to leaving behind religion in the dark ages, and that plays into secularization theory and all kinds of things like that. And then the flip side of that is the, the Catholics and certain other Christians and conservatives who, who say, yeah, we agree. It's the enlightenment versus Christianity, except in this case, it's the enlightenment bad and Christianity good, right? So you reverse the valuation. And my argument is that these these are this is the, this is a polarity that misses the actual nuance of of the story of the of the enlightenment and uh, and so what we need to do is we need to go back in time in a sense which is what historical evidence allows us to do in part we need to go back in time and look around in the 18th century for ourselves we need to look around and say okay what's going on here if if i were to interview people on the street in in 1760s london or paris or or vienna you know what do they think about this movement that maybe they don't use the word the enlightenment yet, but it's something new. There's something in the air. There's, there's, you know, people are, are, are drinking coffee and there's coffee houses and literally the lights are turning on in the cities um, and the streets are being paved and it's, it's exciting time. What do people think about this? Is, is this essentially an attack on religion? Is it not? And, uh, and what my book is trying to do is find out what, what they say. So when Christians engaged the enlightenments, how, how did they do it? And we'll get to, I, I think we'll, if we could talk about that for a moment, then let's specifically look at France, especially and the Catholics in France and people like Voltaire. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And let me just link back to the historiography question here to, to answer that. So in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of new historical scholarship about the Enlightenment, which has really um, created a more, much more nuanced picture. For, so some have looked at it in terms of the, the national context, France, the French Enlightenment, very different than the British and American Enlightenments. Um, others have looked at it in terms of what is called the religious enlightenment. Uh, David Sorkin at, at Yale, for example, is just a wonderful book called The Religious Enlightenment. And since then, there's been a lot of scholarship on a specifically Catholic enlightenment, um, particularly by people like Ulrich Lehner in Notre Dame. But a lot of people he knows, a lot of his friends have been just pumping out books. And we're talking like Oxford University Press books uh, about this idea of a Catholic enlightenment. So there's been a major shift. Not you know this, this isn't me. This is just me picking up on other historians' great work and trying to synthesize it and bring it together for a for a wide audience. And so the shocking thing is here um, is that what we have forgotten is that Christians engaged with the Enlightenment in very sophisticated ways. Very few of them condemned it outright. Most of them, many of them, the educated ones, really worked hard to, to engage the Enlightenment across Europe and even in um, Mexico and other places in North America. And so that's what we see. And so we see, we have to think of the sort of different varieties, different kinds. And so how I divide the Enlightenment up is, is in a sort of three 
three kinds. One, the conflictual enlightenment is what we normally think of it in France, Voltaire, Rousseau, and yeah, definitely at odds with the church and Christianity in general, right? Um, but then you have this, this Catholic enlightenment, which is a, this part of this larger religious enlightenment. And I go to Italy and Germany to talk about to talk about this reality in which you see a sophisticated kind of engagement with the enlightenment. So conflict, yes, but also serious engagement. We can talk more about that. Um, and then the third, just to finish that point, uh, was the practical enlightenment. And this is something that intellectual historians and philosophers sometimes forget, which is that the enlightenment was not just an idea. It was a culture. It was a movement. It was an exciting time of technological change and innovation. And so we have to think about the enlightenment, not just in terms of you know Kant, but also in terms of somebody like Benjamin Franklin and, and various Benedictine monks who were inventing like the first electric motors and these sorts of things, very practical kinds of things. So the practical enlightenment is the third so the practical uh, enlightenment, so the American representative would, I was thinking Franklin before you said Franklin, yeah. but that, that would have to be Benjamin Franklin then, right? That's right. That would be practicality in terms of government as well, wouldn't it? That's right. I think you, That's right. you cite that story in your book when Franklin is telling people about the Constitution after the convention is over and say, no, of course it's not perfect. And I'll paraphrase it, but you know, the best possible polity is what we're trying to give you. You can't have perfection on earth. Yeah. That's right. And that's the practical alignment, intellectually speaking, which is really different than the, the more metaphysical, conflictual alignment in France, which was just sort of very utopian and opposed to Christianity. So, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, let's, vis- let's visit the, the Catholics before we get back to the conflictual then. I was taken with the story you told of Maria Agnesi, the Italian mathematician. And this was somebody with whom I was not too familiar and there were there were a couple things worth noting about the story. And one was not only one was how well she was treated. Two, the respect she was given at the University of Bologna and by Pope uh, uh, Benedict the Fourteenth, the Enlightenment Pope, as you call him, time and again in in your book. Uh, but just comparing her experience in Italy to say the way Enlighteners elsewhere, like Rousseau, treated women. Uh, that was a very, very interesting distinction between those two. Maybe you could tell us a little about a little bit about Maria Agnesi and why we hear about the Scottish Enlightenment. We certainly hear about uh, uh, the French Revolution quite a bit, but you hardly ever hear the phrase Italian Enlightenment. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. It, it, partly because I think the Italian Italian Enlightenment was very connected to the Renaissance that you mentioned earlier, kind of. Con- continuing those themes, um, but also renewal within Catholicism, especially in Milan, that Charles Borromeo had brought about in the early 1600s. And that kind of renewal was uh, a kind of renewal that's it's very different than sort of American Catholicism today. But Italian Catholicism is just much more um, interested in engaging with the, the wider culture. And that's true today, and it was it was true back then. And so Maria Agnesi was educated by very smart clerics, in, like leading figures in mathematics, in physics, um, and she was studying Newton, but she also had a classical education. So she was bringing this all together and uh, came from a wealthy, um, devout family in Milan. And uh, she's famous for being the, the first woman in history to write a mathematics textbook, at least under her own name. And so she was a brilliant mind, but she was also a, a great woman of faith. Her, her private chapel was right next to her private study with a door in between. So sort of this, this, this symbolic movement back and forth of faith and reason in her life and in this Catholic enlightenment. And uh, she would give um, sort of um, salon conversations. So in the, the great drawing room of their family palace in Milan, many people, even from around Europe, would come to listen to her um, lecture and debate in Latin 
um, or in four or five other languages and of all kinds of questions. Uh, she would also spend a lot of her time on the streets helping um, women as a volunteer in local hospitals and things. It's just an amazing person. She would come home from, you know, we're volunteering in the hospital and, and change and get freshened up. Right. And then, and then sort of waltz into these, this drawing room for these high level debates, sort of like a superhero changing costumes. Uh, she is a, just an amazing character. And um, so there's been recent scholarship done on her and my students who read about her are just amazed and, and start wanting to write papers about her. Cause she's so cool. Yeah, that's great. That, that's great. Now, is she? I guess what one should ask then: How distinctive was she then in Italy? And not not simply as a woman, but as that kind of enlightenment figure that's gathering disciples in the way, say, Voltaire did. Yeah, yeah. So as a woman, I mean, there weren't a lot of women doing this, um, but there were even fewer in other places in Europe. And that was a, a thing about Italy, like in mostly coffee houses, for example, which was the new social institution of the 18th century, were men only in most of Europe. But not in Italy. It was possible for men and women to be mixing in these coffee houses, um, and so you have you have um, other other examples. Uh, Piscopia, for example, in in uh, Venice, she was the first woman in history to earn a bachelor a degree from a university. She was a Benedictine, a lay Benedictine woman, um, and so you have this tradition of educated women taking inspiration from the uh, Greek and Roman classic heroines, and also the Virgin Mary. Um, taking inspiration and um, and their culture made space for them, sometimes grudgingly, but it made space. And what was unheard of in Europe was the institutional recognition that they that they achieved at universities and academies, particularly in Bologna, which was in the Papal States. And um, and these women's careers were forwarded by the Pope himself. Like he protected them from jealous male colleagues. And Laura Bassi uh, was a great physicist, is the the person who helped popularize Newton in Italy. She taught in Bologna. She had eight kids, um, but she taught at the university, and uh, she was eventually the highest paid professor at the institution. Um, so this is, this wasn't happening anywhere else in Europe. You have very smart women in other places, but you don't have the kind of institutional recognition that you do here in Italy. Let's look at a let's look at a different experience for Catholics now. So you you pointedly are highly critical of those Catholics in France, particularly in France. Who contributed to the the ill will and sentiments against the church that resulted in violence and and sacrilege during the French Revolution? I remember as a, as a professor, I'd often spend time talking about the the damage done to the churches in France and the uh, the orgies and the tearing out of the tabernacle and the wor- worshiping of the goddess Liberty, etc. Uh, the smashing of smashing of biblical kings, thinking they're the kings of France on the sides of the, the cathedral, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think many, many Americans, at least, especially Catholic integralists and traditionalist Catholics, they're very familiar with the Reformation of Henry VIII, the events described by Eamon Duffy in his groundbreaking study, The Stripping of the Altars, uh, of the, the bloody reign of the English queen Elizabeth I with the priest holes and the executions and the penal laws, and, and ultimately William of Orange in the celebration of his uh, battlefield victories with bonfires and, and uh, uh, flute band parades, even, even to this day. But you tell a tale, which I had to laugh a little bit when I saw Dungeons and Dragoons uh, in, in your book side by side. I had to read it three times to make sure I knew what, what, that you weren't talking about the role-playing game, but these Catholic dragons and the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in order to explain the excesses of the of the French Revolution. It's kind of the flip side, I think, of a story that American Catholics are used to. 
where only the Protestant fanatics are the bad guys and the Catholics are the victim. Uh, maybe can, can you elaborate on that that tale? Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it, John. Is that it's, yeah, it wasn't just the Protestants who were fanatics; they were Catholic fanatics too. And this was a this was a major problem um, because in in a way, you know, the the odd man out in this Enlightenment story is France. In in much of Europe, you have this religious enlightenment, you have a lot of religious figures who at a high level are engaging modern sciences, Newton, even, you know, modern political ideas. You have that happening, but for some reason, what happened in France has sort of um, flavored the, the our whole memory of the enlightenment ever since. And so the question really is, why in France was there this incredible polarity develop between, you know, the French revolution and the church, um, but even before that, between these what were called philosophes, which is I don't use that term because it's biased French term, but I'll use it in the French context. The, uh, this dichotomy between the philosophes and um, and religion. So how, where did this come from? And it's really odd, actually, too, John. If you think about it, because France was long the eldest daughter of the church. She was known as this, you know, very faithful, you know, Catholic country. And so why does this radical movement come out of it? It's a very strange puzzle. And Grant. Granted, there, there are many different ways that you could try to answer this question. There's in history, there's never just one, one cause of, of anything. It's, right, it's the principle of complexity in historical thinking, right? But the one that I really wanted to focus on was the one that's most uncomfortable for us, for, for Catholics at least. <laughs> and that is Catholic sin, is what I call it, and bad political thinking, too. And, and what happened in France is you have this, this monarch rise up through absolute monarchy who is sort of inspired by this. Um, kind of integralist idea of sort of joining church and state in a, in a very close and tight relationship, right? He would work. I mean, he had a spiritual advisor. He had good relationships with leading bishops and, and they were going to work together to create this French and very Catholic nation. And so they, um, they passed a bill, passed a law, um, which essentially made it illegal to be a Protestant. Um, you could privately in your conscience, be a Protestant, but you couldn't publicly worship. And, and so this was called the Edict of Nantes had given them religious freedom. So the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685 undid that. And this, um, and to enforce this, this law um, through the dragons or the dragoons, the, the French uh, light cavalry, uh, would fan out across the country and basically terrorize the population. And uh, many bishops would invite the dragons into their diocese in order to carry out their work. And um, the Protestants began to flee. Now, the, the official belief was there weren't really many left in France anyway, so it didn't really matter. But events proved otherwise. Now, who, who, was of promoting, who was promoting the no. official belief? Yeah. I mean, so, who was telling the king that, hey, look, there's not many of these, there's not many Huguenots anyway, so. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, well, I mean, his, his, his close advisors, I mean, it was sort of one of those um, convenient lies that that supported the policy that the church and the state wanted to have right so his closest advisors so the king was was believing this and 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 i think a lot of his um uh, the upper level churchmen i think believed it too there weren't a lot left because on paper it looked like you know the whole realm was was catholic and but that's part of the problem with enforcing faith is that on paper it looks one way but in reality it's it's another way and you you create a reaction and so as people are fleeing the country the government realized holy smokes a lot of our best citizens are leaving the country we better close the borders so france became a prison for people that wanted to escape for freedom of conscience and then uh, the persecution unfolds 
And the basic idea here is that this persecutory state um, then becomes a weapon used during the French Revolution against Catholics themselves. Right. So once you once you yield to this kind of Catholic political correctness uh, and you abuse other people's consciences, um, then you it's not just a personal sin. It's also sort of a political sin. And you create the very machinery that will later be used against you. And that's exactly what happened. And that's the background, I think, to this resentment and this deep conflict, not just in France, but that is spread after the French Revolution around Europe into our own modern mentality to this day. Now, you even call it a superstition in the book that, that mm -hmm. so twisted their faith uh, it, that they couldn't look at their Huguenot neighbor and see the Imago Dei. They could only see something that, that ought to be massacred or driven out yep. or compelled. So this Compelled. misuse of the the compulsion, which that's right. Uh, you you quote uh, Saint Jose Maria Escrivá in, in the book, and and C.S. Lewis, and all all this exegesis about what that compulsion means and how it was how it was twisted, mm -hmm. how it was twisted, and even that term political correctness I thought was was interesting, uh, yeah. interesting to use there for France. Yeah, it, it completely was. It, it, we used to, we're used to thinking of political correctness as something like the left or the progressivists do today. Well, there's political correctness within Catholic cultures too. And a superstition is exactly what it was because it is superstitious to sacralize political authority um, because that's putting too much weight. It's too utopian. It's putting too much weight on sort of what's a really a re, a worldly kind of reality. And Jesus you know, clearly said, Caesar and God are not the same thing. And, and when you get that confused, uh, it creates major problems in your country, and even in, in modern history itself. Yeah, you, you quote the, the Caesar quote, right? Uh, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Uh, so you render under Caesar, when Caesar acts like or claims to be God, is going to stretch the point, uh, stretch the state to the point that if we do obey it, then we're denying God. So what one of the things I think that the church was successful at for centuries was taking taking the state of ancient Rome, where the emperor was worshipped as a god, where the state was divine in essence because the state was installed in this, in this person, and, and desacralizing it. And so this move that you're describing uh, amid the Enlightenment and in conflict with the Enlightenment, but really leading to it, not resulting from it. I think maybe that's the key. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what we, so when we study the history, it's not that this doesn't cause the the understanding and mentality that the church has in the 19th century, that is a result of the, the all those condemnations of liberalism, et cetera, that we get from Pius IX and Gregory the Sixteenth, et cetera, in the, in the 19th century. Those are the result of looking at how bloody democracy is in France and the many revolutions and the revolutions of 1848. But when you start uh, tracing cause and effect, we can keep going mm -hmm. back quite a bit. So that you take it back before the Enlightenment, so the Enlightenment doesn't get all the blame. Everybody right. is... Uh, there's a lot of people who are responsible for this sin. So to re-divinize the state takes the church away from its its real mission, which is which is evangelization. And you, you point right. out I, pretty well in the book, you, you can't evangelize this way. And so here's the result, right? You, yep. you see the result. Maybe the, the worst result you describe in the book was the murder of the Carmelites on the scaffold. And I, I think it's, it's very good literature, actually, Joseph, the way you describe it in tandem with, uh, uh, with Voltaire and, mm -hmm. and his death. I should say his many deaths. Some some fake, one real. Uh, that, that was a strange thing. Uh, but what, what 
why why did you choose to kind of hold up Voltaire on one end of the, this axis and the Carmelites on the other in this this death scene? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I've actually never been asked that question. Um, hmm. um, so yeah, so it's the Car- part one of the book is on this conflictual enlightenment. It's based in France. And you're right that the main characters that kind of frame part one of the book are the Carmelites of Compiègne, um, great, just incredible martyrs and, and figures of the faith, and and Voltaire as, as this symbol of this conflict. And um, so I think the reason I wanted to sort of juxtapose them was um, partly because um, the the conflict is seen in in their approaches to religion, yes, that's part of it. Um, but also because um, it's not its not as if one is good and one is bad completely. I mean, the nuns are, they're martyrs, so they're good. But but Voltaire is a complex figure and and he, he himself has been had been working for, for justice. He became sort of a, a human rights uh, kind of activist who was trying to um, end this, this persecutory regime that I was talking about earlier. And I think he was, um, largely and, and well justified in, in many of the things, his critiques of that context that he was in. And so I've tried to build up a sympathetic picture of Voltaire uh, and then a really sympathetic picture of the, of the nuns. And they're both approaching their death, which of course are in different years. Voltaire is dying in 1778 and the, and the nuns in 1794. But I thought, hmm, outside of time, their deaths are happening simultaneously, <laughs> if we thought of it that way. And so to juxtapose their deaths with a little passage from Voltaire as he's dying, and then a little passage describing the nuns as they're dying and going back to Voltaire, um, would help to spiritually show what's happening. Um, because Voltaire, is, while he was a sympathetic figure, in some ways, he, one of his major flaws and major problems was the deep sort of individualism, the heart of his thought, and and, and his, re- his rebellion against against the church, although maybe reconciled at the end, we're not sure. Um, and so, but the point is, is that his very individualistic philosophy plays out in his own death, which is that he dies alone in agony, abandoned by even his, his mistress at the end and, and even his nurses. Um, and so as you're watching that, you're watching a certain kind of philosophy without God and what it leads to. And at the same time, you're seeing this, this philosophy of following God closely as martyrs dying as a community um, together, so not alone, uh, and also peacefully, because these sisters were singing uh, and on their way to the guillotine, and so trying to uh, that spiritual contrast, yeah. and not and not only peacefully. You describe one of the sisters asking her mother superior for permission. Yeah. That it, this just this recognition that her life is not her own, that pe- people are not objects, including including you yourself, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I, th- I thought that was that was a very powerful heart wrenching moment uh, describing that martyrdom in your book. So Voltaire suffers from what I think Kant and Paine suffered from, and this is that that radical view of themselves as as autonomous, which is right. which is. I think, you know, events is this anthropology that rejects the classical wisdom that man is a social animal, number one, and Mm. and that thought and action have an ethical connection, that you you can't just separate so. And and it rejects Augustine's insight that our minds are restless until they rest uh, in in God, and rejects, I would say, the, the scholastic synthesis of that recognize the unity of truth and that you can approach it by many means and not only not just by reason alone but uh, certainly through more than 
only those things which we can empirically measure and sift through and and gauge. And that seems to me the the underlying principle in all the secular enlighteners is that that faulty anthropology and what it can lead to. And I think you do see it in Robespierre's terror, which he praised as an as virtuous in his mm-hmm. in his uh, diatribe against uh, his enemies during the reign of terror. That's right. Now, I, I, what do you make of John Paul II and Fides et Ratio talking about people like Voltaire, saying, you know, even those who separated faith from reason, somehow could they could still have insights worth noting and could still propel us forward in thinking more deeply about how faith and reason interact. Yeah, he's right. He's absolutely right. And, and, and it's an insight that Newman... I think sensed too in Newman's own uh, development of doctrine book. If you read carefully toward the beginning, he talks about the ways that ideas develop and they often develop through different people, very different views, conflict and sort of the dust of life that gets into the air. And it's when you're in it, it feels awful. And it seems like, you know, there's these enemies that you want to, you just want to kill them to see it feels like at the moment. But in reality, you're locked in this Titanic struggle. And, um, as the dust settles it with enough time and you realize, holy smokes, I wasn't all right. And they weren't all wrong. And, and I think you can see that in someone like Voltaire for sure. I mean, I was really struck John writing this book and you read Voltaire's treatise on toleration and certain parts of it read very much like Dignitatis Humanae of, of Vatican II and, and the, in the importance of religious freedom. And I mean, Voltaire talks about how Jesus was gentle. He didn't try to force people to follow him. And the bishops at Vatican II said the same thing. And so this sort of, there's eerie kind of echo across the, uh, the ages that, that linked uh, a lot of Voltaire's insights to, um, to later truths that Catholics have sort of just take for granted now. Yeah. That's what, when C.S. Lewis says that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of, of men. Yes. Uh, Joseph, this this has been a pleasant conversation. I'd, I'd like to uh, bring us up to the present to, to close out our Act in Line interview on your book, Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason. Uh, what lessons should we take today, particularly, I would say, from the Catholic role in, in really— uh, the conflictual enlightenment in France, that is the, the, the Catholic role. In the face of, on the one hand, we have uh, the woke mob. And recently I read, a, it's, I, I thought, a really good definition of woke by Robert George, calling it, quote, the attitude of a person who regards his or her opinions as so obviously correct and so profoundly enlightened, there's the word enlightened, that they may not legitimately be doubted or challenged and that only hate or bigotry can explain others holding different beliefs, end quote. So you have that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, government-enforced gender ideology that contradicts both faith and reason. So what, what is the Catholic, uh, indeed, what, what are all Christians to do? The post-liberals, the Catholic integralists advocate for an integralist state and state capitalism, I think it, in their own way, but in a different way, national conservatives do as well. You can you can certainly understand the uh, the temptation, the temptation to uh, wield state power on behalf of the faith and common sense, etc. So what what is what is your cure for what ails our whole society, Joseph? It's up to you, a mere historian, to to help <laughs> oh, us out here. But what what lessons can we glean from the entire Enlightenment experience that might help yeah. us navigate this? Good, thank you. No, I'll just try to. Two, two last thoughts here. So the first is um, 
just the importance of history, of good history, and to, partly to kind of settle us down in our in our theoretical kind of hot headedness, um, and to say, okay, look, your ideas come from somewhere, and so do mine. If we understand the roots of that, we'll understand the the questions that are, were originally motivating them, that were behind them, and so then our ideas become not just sort of these free-floating things like Hegel would say, sort of in, in conflict with each other anymore, but rather they're related to a particular community and a particular time. And if you understand that, it, it just um, inculcates a certain kind of humility and realism in them. And, and even if you don't agree with somebody, trying to understand where their thinking is coming from. So good history is essential to be at least in the background for our more theoretical discussions that we like to have in the, in our present political age. So that's one lesson I think, and I think the, the history of the 18th century is particularly important because that is a time when people were trying to deal with different ideological positions, and they had codes of conduct uh, and free speech, and the idea that you should be able to come into a coffee house and talk with people of very different kinds and uh, enjoy the the very hot coffee served in dishes back then and sort of bowls almost um, and then have that kind of conversation. So I think that good history and that that freedom of conversation is is one point I'll end with. And then the second and last point is really the the overall takeaway from my book, I hope, which is that there were that Christians um, interacted with their modern enlightenment culture in three ways in the 18th century through conflict, through conflicting with that environment, through engaging, that environment and through sort of retreating from it, which we didn't talk a lot about in this interview, but the third strategy was retreating from it and just sort of letting it happen. You do your thing and I'll do mine. We would maybe saw this, call that the, the Benedict option today in its positive best sense, right? And my argument is that we need all three of those. We need all three. In our narrowness, we like to think one of them is the only proper response. Wrong. People have different vocations. Different institutions have different. Acton has its own has its, its own vocation in a sense, but a Catholic university or Catholic charities might have a different kind of uh, vocation. Appreciating that there are people who are really good at conflict, maybe lawyers, maybe other people who are good at engagement, you know, professors and journalists and whoever, and other people who are really good at retreat. And we need all three strategies to have a healthy relationship to the modern world and to help the, the kingdom of God thrive. And I think that that's, that's what we need. And thank you, Joseph. And, and you would argue then that the, we, we could, these are lessons to be gleaned from the enlightenment. I, we don't want to go into gleaning too many lessons from history, of course, in the, in the old fashioned sense in which most historians would criticize that. But, uh, but certainly I, I would say the same thing about the American founding. Be, before we put up a straw man and call it liberalism and strike it down and blame everything on 1776 or pick another year, 1619, like the 1619 Project, we have to learn to manage the complexity of history, the good and the bad, the perfect with the imperfect, what people say versus what they do. And when the bad people unintentionally uh, bring about good things, uh, Lord Acton talks about this in his histories uh, uh, quite quite a bit. These things happen, and so this this is why a historical grounding I think is important to all these discussions. Uh, the the difficulty comes in arguing in the best sense of the word with those who don't argue back. I think in in some ways that's our current challenge. If we just if if we argue past each other, we're still not we're still not engaging in a conversation. And yeah. that's, that's increasingly difficult to do, I would say, given the uh, technological, social media landscape. 
that's when we need to figure out how to garden together and go out and, and volunteer together on for, for homeless people and help it. You know, if you can't talk, let's at least do <laughs> together. Yeah, right. I, I don't, except for a couple of my neighbors, because I know them well, I don't really know their politics. Uh, we yeah. do things like uh, take care of the neighborhood, take care of the lake, argue about what day to hold a picnic in the neighborhood, just uh, neighborly things that are a good example of Tocqueville and associative life. And mm-hmm. we don't talk politics because we don't, we don't really have to. We all have to drive over the same potholes, though. That's right. right? That's right. Subsidiarity in action, I guess. That's right. Uh, So, Dr. Joseph Stewart, professor of history at the University of Mary and author of Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in an Age of Reason, and author most recently of Christopher Dawson, A Cultural Mind in the Age of the Great War. I want to thank you very much for uh, being on Acton Line. I appreciate our conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. This is Dr. John Panero. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.